James Burns, I'm an alcoholic. If this thing gets away from me, would you, I saw you raise your hand a while ago, raise your hand and I'll pull it out and hold it in my hand, okay? Uh, it may be that when I get to where you can't hear me, you won't hear it anyway, so you won't raise your hand, but you might want to raise your hand. Uh, if you do want to, I'll, I'll work it out some way. Uh, I really appreciate being asked to talk. I know an awful lot of people in this room. Uh, it's a beautiful place to come to. It's a, obviously a beautiful conference to be at. And a number of you people I've known over the years. I think probably one of the greatest honors that I can be bestowed uh, is to be asked to talk among some friends. I've been fortunate over the years to be able to run around the country pretty extensively and, and talk because I think I do try to walk like I talk. And every now and then when I move out of the way, I talk pretty good. Uh, but those people kind of know me like they know a lot of speakers. You get kind of evangelized, come in, say what you got to say, and you really don't know whether the hell you're living it or not. But you people have watched me uh, work a program, uh, and you've heard me talk. And in spite of hearing me talk, you still ask me to come back and talk with you. So it means you appreciate my program as much as you appreciate my talk, and I really am grateful for that. I uh, really am grateful for it. Uh, before I go on, I'd like to, many of y'all know my wife, but in case you don't, I'd like to introduce my wife. Casey, would you stand up, please? I won't say she keeps me sober, but she certainly does help keep me sober. I looked at the list of speakers, and uh, Ken's a, a friend of mine. I won't say he's a, a real close friend, but he has, over the years, become a friend, and I was looking forward to seeing him. I'm really sorry for his pain. Uh, I've known that's been going on for some time because of some intercommunication with a number of us that I've had over the years, and, and I'm just sorry you didn't hear it. I'm really sorry for that kind of pain. Kathy H. from Cincinnati is one of my dearest friends. Uh, I don't know why. There was a bonding that occurred with Kathy and Casey and me uh, some years ago at a talk we gave uh, in Bull Shoals, Arkansas, and it was a wonderful time. It still sticks out in my mind as one of the top things that's ever happened to me. And I love her deeply. Uh, Milt is worming his way into our affection, and we're letting him in gradually. <laughs> and uh, actually, his whole credibility rests on the fact that he's dating Jazzy, i got to tell you. <laughs> in all honesty, y'all know Milt. Many of you do, and uh, he could be up here doing exactly what I'm doing and carrying the same message. So it's good to see them. The other speakers I don't know, or if I do, I just have forgotten, and I'm looking forward to hearing them, too. Before I get started, I need to talk to some of the people who may be new in this program. When I used to go into conferences and I'd hear speakers talk, I assumed that, that since they were a speaker, they obviously were there to deliver the truth. And they were there to deliver the truth in the impeccable way of delivering the truth. And if I listened to what they said and did what they said they did, then I would be able to stay sober. Well, I got goofy and a snake trying to do that, because they might, they might be in a spot that I wasn't at. Uh, I might be at a place where they weren't, but the bottom line was I found out that I just couldn't do that. So if you're here believing that when I talk or when any speaker talks, you're going to hear the right way, the only way, or the best way to recover, let me clarify that real quickly. There'll be some things that you will hear, and hopefully I will be able to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what, what I'm like today. And I'll tell it to you in a way that means a great deal to me. And it will mean a great deal to some of y'all. Uh, take what I say if it's something that strikes you and you can use it and use it. If it's something you don't even understand, then thank God. One of the things that's, that's the good part about being a Friday night speaker 
as I get a chance to identify myself, and there may be some things you want to share with me and ask me about my story, and that you want to give me of your story. And it makes the Friday night speaker really <clears throat> the best spot in the program. Unless, of course, you make a fool of yourself, and then it gets kind of... <laughs> and nobody talks to you then, you kind of get the idea that you made a fool of yourself. But in any event, it really does allow for a lot of exchange of, of, of those kind of ideas. So I, I really would like to have you talk with me if there's something you want me to talk to you further about or you need to share with me. But I don't want anybody to think that what I'm going to say is the right way, the best way, or the only way to recover. It's what has happened in my life that, is, that I've been able to do and God has led me to do that enables me not to have found it necessary to take a drink for almost 16 years. My sobriety dates December the 1st, 1977. I gave a talk in southern Indiana one time uh, in Jeffersonville. When I walked in, they knew I knew a lot of people there, but they knew I was usually only there to speak at birthdays. And one of the guys said, hey, Burns, are you talking tonight? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, keep it honest and keep it short. And I said, well, I'm not sure I can do, do both. He said, then keep it short. <laughs> well, those of you who have heard me talk know that that's not usually what happens. Uh, it's better now than it used to be, and, and I actually did something different as a result of a talk I gave in Indianapolis. I got up to talk, and I was the fourth speaker on a whole list of speakers, and I was tired as hell, and I had a watch that, as I've gotten older, I can't see. And, uh, I mean, it has something to do with my recovery, I think. It has nothing to do with my age, you understand, but I can't see the watch. And they had a clock at the back of the room, and the clock stopped. And I'm up there just pouring it on, and, I, and there's a lot of things I never have a chance to say because of time constraints. And I looked up at the clock, and it said I had about 15 minutes left, and I told everything I normally say, tell. And I thought, well, I've got some neat stuff I want to talk about. So I just took off talking about everything. Talk went about an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> and that's the damn truth. And I didn't even know it. And I didn't know it until I got the tape. And I called the taper and apologized for it. Carl, I think you were taping it that. Yeah, I know you were. You were taping that up. So I got me a watch with those hands that you can see in the back of the room. May not be able to hear me, but you can see my watch. And I usually try to pay attention to it. So I'm not sure that it will be as short as some of you may like. I know it's really kind of threatening when someone who's the voice gets up and says they're tired before you talk. A lot of people wait until after I talk to get tired. And that kind of threatens me when I know they're tired before I start. Uh, but we'll take off and see where we go with this. Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that we have a peculiar mental twist. And that's fascinating that not many of us talk about that that, very, that much, but that the alcoholic has a peculiar mental twist. That peculiar mental twist seems to pervade my whole thinking, which ultimately will get me back to drinking. But it's a peculiar mental twist about almost everything that I do and every thought that I have. I was in Beaumont, Texas, giving a talk at a conference, and the voice of that conference was 85 years old, been sober about 45 years, and he talked like he would have a flat brainwave. And almost everybody during the time he was talking would just talk to each other. But I began to realize that this guy was sharp, and I got right on the front row so I could hear what he had to say. First of all, he was funny, and second of all, he really had some neat stuff to say. And he told this wonderful story that best typifies the peculiar mental twist. There was this traveling salesman in East Texas that would run the circuit. He would go into Longview and stay a week, go into the next town for a week, next town for a week, and he'd ride that circuit about every month. Well, he was a bad drunk, and when he'd come in in the evening after working, the motel would set him up like they normally did because he knew he was going to get drunk, and he'd go through his routine. 
He left Longview this one night, and he just had about all that fun he could tolerate, so he got into AA. And when he circled, circled back into Longview a month later, they had him, you know, he went out that night like he was going to go to dinner, and they figured he'd get drunk, so they had everything set up like they normally did. Well, he went to an AA meeting. And he came in, opened the door, and switched on the light. Sure enough, they had him set up. Here was this quart of whiskey sitting on the bedside table, and two women sitting on the end of the bed, like they normally set it up for him. He sat there and looked at those women, he looked at that whiskey, and he said, Well, said, I started going to AA, and they told me that if I wanted to stay sober, don't drink, and if I wanted to be happy, change, change everything I'm doing. He said, So I can't drink that whiskey, and one of you girls is going to have to leave. Now, that's truly a peculiar mental twist, see, because he believed it, and I can relate to it, and every drunk in this room can relate to it. We see a set of circumstances, and our peculiar mental twist, which will lead us back to that condition of the mind which says it's okay to drink, will compromise the reality. But one fellow say he treats his mind like a bad neighborhood. He never goes in there alone. And I'm telling you what I have to do. This is one of the reasons I go to five meetings a week, have a sponsor, have a home group, and work my butt off with alcoholics and try to read that book and work those steps because that's the way I am. And it seems right. When I left treatment, the guy that ran the treatment center put his arm around me. He said, how do you feel? And I said, I am scared to death. And he said, what are you scared of? you think you're going to drink or drug? And I said, no, you told me what I've got to do not to drink or drug. And I believe you if I'll do it. You told me to go home and go to AA. He said, then what are you afraid of? And I said, I don't know. I'm just afraid I'm going to screw it up. He said, what? I said, I don't know. Just going to screw it up. As the years have unfolded, what I've come to know is that was the seminal fear that I had. Yes, I have multiple fears about almost everything. But my ultimate fear is the fear of me. Is the fear of me. The big book teaches me in that wonderful chapter, the fifth chapter in the fourth step, what is the basis of our fear? It's the fear of the failure of our own self-reliance, which boiled down for Burns Brady is the deep, 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 deep feeling of inadequacy. I can't handle it. I'll turn the corner and it'll be bigger and meaner and faster and it'll whip my butt. I can't be a doctor, I can't be a husband, I can't be a lover, I can't be a, a, a decent human being. I can't handle it. And what I found out is alone, I am inadequate. I can't handle it. But in this beautiful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the big book and the 12 steps, and the guide that it's led me to of my understanding, I'm never alone. I have found nothing in 16 years that has come up that I've had to deal with that we could not handle. You and I and God have handled it very, very well. Since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've found that there are some things that are constant for me. They literally have not changed throughout this entire period of my recovery. The first thing that has not changed is that I am constantly changing. I am constantly changing 
the evolution of this program, if I'm willing to put up the, the muscle and follow the directions, uh, it leads me to constantly change. I've had people say this is different plateaus of growth. I don't have a problem with that intellectually. That doesn't feel in here. What feels in here is there have been different plateaus of surrender. Where I've surrendered to God's power and my powerlessness. Ultimately, what I surrendered to was the unmanageability of life. Early on when I came in the program, I'd listen to the old-timers and they'd say when someone had a slip and they'd come back, they'd say, well, he just didn't know how to deal with the first step. And I think they're talking about he didn't recognize he was powerless over alcohol. As the years have unfolded, I've found that most people who have slips will tell you the minute they're drinking that they believe they're powerless over alcohol. What they haven't come to grips with is they can't run life. The world and its people dominated us. They can't run life. And that's exactly where my major conflicts are. Wah, wah, wah. I keep hitting the wall. I stand back. And I, my nose is bloody. And I think, my God, what's wrong with this? And the last time I did was about four years ago when I went through a conflict and I went through five fourth steps and five fifth steps in one month. Finally, my sponsor looked at me and he said, you are wearing my ass out. I just can't take this anymore. I said, well, I'm doing the best I can do. He said, yeah, you're doing the best you can do, but you got a sixth and seventh step to get to, boy. You may do the best you can do with the action step, but somewhere in this whole deal, you're going to have to surrender to the fact that God's going to control the outcome. Different plateaus of surrender. The alcoholic, at least this alcoholic, when I can't get the square peg in the round hole, my mechanism is just get a bigger hammer. And that's what I've got to deal with. And I found that when I surrender to God's power at each of these levels, there have been different plateaus of surrender. And what I, the message I got back from you people, and God does talk to me directly, he just sounds a lot like you. And the message I got back from you was, you can surrender to God's power, but you're going to have to get off your butt and do the work. I lived eight and a half years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with a three and one third step program. The first three and a third of the twelve. You know where you go out and get drunk? And I got to tell you, it kept me sober. I'm absolutely convinced it kept me sober because I, it wasn't a notch your belt deal. I was told if I wanted to stay sober, work with alcoholics. I went everywhere and I got more people into treatment. I got more people into AA and I'm convinced it kept me sober. And at eight and a half years in this program, I was as goofy as a snake and driven to my knees to do the rest of the work for a full 12 step program. Today, I'm just like anybody else, goofy on some days and not goofy on some days. But I now have some insight into what my job is to this day and what's God's job. I can tell you right now, living for eight and a half years with a three and third step program and the last seven and a half years or thereabouts with a 12 step program is different as daylight and dark. If my experience means anything and you're that goofy, ask yourself if you got a 12 step program or if you got a six step program or you got a three and a third step program. God's power, my surrender to it and my job to get off my butt and do it. Bill Wilson said one time, the good can be the enemy of the best. i got to tell you, I've never had anything as good as not drinking until I was able to work a full 12-step program, and that's the best. That's the best. The second thing in my recovery that has not changed is that I am powerless over alcohol. Alcohol whipped me. I mean, it whipped me. It left me nothing. I started taking amphetamine in 1958, and I took amphetamine for 12 years, quit in 1970. I was not drinking during that period of time. I quit drink, I quit taking amphetamine in 1970 because it was messing up my life. Never, because it was messing up my life. <laughs> I 
I quit taking amphetamine in 1970 because it was messing up my life. Okay, we'll start back. Let me tell you the joke again about it. This is a good joke. I'd have a couple of others if you want to hear. I quit taking amphetamine in 1970 because it was messing up my life. I didn't know the concept of powerlessness, but it never even dawned on me. I just got tired of them putting me in mental institutions and threatening to put me in prisons. So I quit taking amphetamine because it was messing up my life. Eight years later, when I started drinking, I started drinking right after I quit taking amphetamine. Eight years later, I was on my hands and knees and whiskey whipped me. I didn't care whether I maintained my practice. I didn't care about anything, but would somebody please show me how not to drink and help me feel good about me. Alcohol whipped me. When I'm sitting in a meeting and I listen to someone say, you know, I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. What I think is, you know, it takes what it takes because it's what it took for me. But if you're an alcoholic of my type, I hope you come to that piece so we can get on with the job of recovery. Because i got to tell you, one of the greatest gratitudes I've got is the fact that alcohol whipped me. Because there's never been an option that I felt was a viable option for me to do and stay alive. I have considered drinking during those 16 years, especially early on. Not because I wanted to drink, but because I didn't want to feel the pain that I was feeling in recovery. But I knew for me to drink was to die. Because of witness. Third thing that has not changed is that it would take a power greater than me to restore me to sanity. Now, it took a power greater than me to restore me to sanity from the insanity of drinking. I'm probably, in all humility, one of the country's leading experts in the field of alcoholism. Where I got my experience was drinking. <laughs> Eleven years ago, I began to study our disease. And what it has done is enhance what Silkworth said is we have a physical allergy and a mental obsession. And I need to tell anybody who's just come into this program that if you come into this program and work these steps perfectly and you go to meetings till who laid the rail and you stick around long enough, you're still not going to be able to drink like a normal person if you're an alcoholic in my type. Because where alcohol is concerned, we're playing two sandwiches short of a picnic and we'll never catch up. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> so yeah, it took a power greater than me to restore me to sanity from the insanity of drinking because I couldn't quit. But once that I had quit drinking, I was left with the real problem. I was left with me. And it has taken a power greater than me to restore me to sanity from the insanity of sobriety, which is just as stark as was the insanity of drinking. Because I've made as many dumb decisions sober as I made drunk. And the only excuse I've had is me and my own self-centeredness and that peculiar mental twist. About three years ago, I was walking down the hall in my office. And uh, that particular day, it had not been one of those good days. My gal up front, the secretary up front, had not pulled the chart on time. She sent it back about an hour late. My nurse took a hold of the chart, didn't do the temperature, didn't do the blood pressure, didn't do anything like that. So I went in to see the patient about two hours late. And she just ate my butt out something awful. And I stood there and took it, and I took it, and finally I walked out in the hall and did the only thing I could do. I brought both the girls back to fire them. And as they walked away, I thought, my God in heaven, how long are you going to have to deal with this insatiable ego? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of ego that wants to go skydiving naked at the Super Bowl. You know? <laughs> and every alcoholic would love to go skydiving naked at the Super Bowl. 
Now, those of us who are humble would wear a mask. And all the guys would be absolutely convinced that we would be recognized. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about that kind of ego. I'm talking about the ego that says it's my way or the highway, right? Ken Step tells me each day I'll face self-centeredness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What I do about it, quickly ask God to remove it, I talk to somebody and make my amends and I help somebody. Program's real simple. Not necessarily easy, and Wilson said this in his story, program simple but not easy requires the destruction of self-centeredness, but I know exactly what to do. Now, the question is, will I do it? That particular day, I went into my office, got on my knees, said, God, please take this away, picked up the phone, called my sponsor, talked him a minute, did the only thing that was obvious, went out, called the girls back, and rehired them. They hadn't left yet because they fired them the same way six months ago. They know I'm going to <laughs> I make my amends to them for my attitude. We talk about the fact they didn't do their job, which is appropriate. Grown-ups are supposed to do their job. But I made my amends for my attitude. Got that all taken care of. And that night I went to my home group, which is a men's meeting at Trinity on Tuesday night. When chairman said, does anybody in here have trouble staying away from drink today or have a living problem? I said, yeah. And remember, I'm 13 years, almost 14 years sober at this time. I held a man. I said, yeah, I've got a little problem I'd like to talk about. He said, what's that? And I said, how long have I got to deal with this insatiable ego? And a uh, guy sitting there, been sober about two years. I sponsored him the first year about my age, raised his hand. He said, Burns, I don't know how long you got to deal with that insatiable ego, but you taught me we just got to do it for today. <laughs> you know, you raise them and they just jump up and bite you right in the butt. Like, wow! It's like that. The, the beauty of this program is that tonight when we close, we'll close in a circle holding hands. There won't be a pyramid. Those of us who from time to time want to become gurus, it just isn't allowed for very long, you know? And isn't it beautiful? It just isn't allowed. Now, if you want to know how I deal with that insatiable ego, where my program is today, and most of you, if you're really thinking or asking, wonder how he does deal with it, because we all got that problem. It's real simple. I follow the directions in the big book. I get up in the morning, and the first thing I do about getting up in the morning is I get up on time. It seems to be a real problem with alcoholics getting up on time. First five years of the program when I had sawdust for brains, you know, I really did, certainly the first three years uh, I had sawdust for brains, and I'd go up to my sponsor and I'd say, Jim, what do you think are the psychological implications of my always being late in the morning? And he'd just look at me and he'd say, why don't you get your ass up on time? I heard my first lesson about discipline, so yeah, I start my morning off by getting up on time. Then I begin my meditation, which involves the eleventh step prayer, the third step prayer, the third and the seventh step prayer. For me, there are wonderful excerpts out of the big book that have to do with tolerance. And God knows I need to focus on them in the morning talking to God, because I'm not tolerant of you and I'm not tolerant of me. All I demand of me is perfection, and all I demand of you is be just like me. And that leads to a hell of a fist fight over the days over, I gotta tell you. Both inside me and with you. So there's some wonderful passages in there about tolerance, and I, I pray and I focus on that. I try to execute the day with the tenth step, which leads me to all the others, and I close my day with the eleventh step closure prayer. Now, this is my program. Please understand that's where I am today, and I'm not sure that it will always stay this way, but I have a sneaking idea that, that will be the core, core part of my program, probably for the rest of my recovery. There's also something I've added that, that means a great deal to me through some crises that I've had in the last four or five years. I ask each morning that God give me the strength not to hurt myself and not to hurt you. 
One of the main reasons I got in this program is I was finally tired of hurting people. I just couldn't tolerate me from hurting other people. I think I'd probably, I may have even died had it just been me, but I don't think I could tolerate any more hurting other people. I've also found out something happened with me when I hurt myself. You know who pays for it first? Oh, I will eventually pay for it. You know who pays for it first? All the significant loved ones around me. All the significant, you know, it's that classic thing where you stick your lip out, and if you really long enough, far enough along this program where it's really subtle and delusional, you stick your lip out and let them wonder how, why you're pissed off and if they caused it, you know? You don't scream and shout, you just, he's pissed off, I wonder why. Well, Casey's got to get in that program today, it doesn't work. And that just is frustrating to do that. That's not to hurt me, and not to hurt you. I'm a doctor, as many of you know. I practiced 25 years of family medicine. I quit two years ago to become chairman of the Impaired Physicians for the State of Kentucky. My job is to teach doctors about how to treat us. Uh, also to get doctors in treatment, get them home, get them into recovery. But during that 25 years of practicing family medicine, I saw just about everything there was to see in relation in regard to disease. I found no disease that even remotely, even remotely approximates the disease of alcoholism for its destruction. It takes everybody prisoner and spares none. I found during that time, and certainly in my own recovery, there's only one power strong enough to deal with a disease of that magnitude, and that's the power of love. When I was a little boy in kindergarten Sunday school in Western Kentucky in Mayfield, I used to sit in that little swing and would swing, and they'd say to me, God is love, God is love, God is love. When I came to you people and you tried to get me into a third step process, I couldn't do that. And I really cut down on myself real hard because I thought it meant that I just couldn't have the faith and couldn't believe in God. And I want some of you to listen closely because you've got to be related to this. What I found out in my study of alcoholism is we are unable to think abstractly for approximately two years of our recovery. And the third step is an abstract concept. And I mean, I just would cry because I wanted so desperately to get a handle on that third step and it didn't seem to, to be there. It wasn't that I rejected God, I just couldn't process the whole concept. So I used to just sit and say, God is love. God is love. And it brought me great peace. As my recovery has progressed, and that third step gives me no problem at all, what I found out is it's still that simple. If there's one word that is synonymous with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, it's love. If there's one word that's synonymous with God for me, it's AA. If there's one word that's synonymous for God for me, it's love. Love, God, and AA. Ask Geraldine Delaney, she's, many of you know Miss Delaney, she's almost 90 years old and it's over almost 50 years. And I asked Miss Delaney about three years ago, I said, has AA changed since you came in? And she didn't hesitate. She said, yes. I said, how has it changed? She said, when I came into AA, there were at least 20 old timers for every newcomer. She said, today there are about 40 newcomers for every old timer. She said, we must maintain integrity with the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we literally have people sponsoring people today who may not have been sober more than six months to a year, and that's just simply the reality of it. And we must maintain integrity with the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of the five meetings I go to a week, two of them involve big book studies. 
It's critical for me and it's critical for the new person who's coming in. It's critical for me and it's critical for the new person who's coming in. And I really believe that it's really true for me. It's to maintain the integrity of the principle. Therefore, to get less deluded by the personalities and all the things that are occurring. The face of Alcoholics Anonymous in my brief 16 years has changed dramatically. You know the face of AA as we've seen it on the boards of our AA clubs and in our AA meetings that show these two men sitting beside a bed with their suits on, talking to a man with his t-shirt on, and they are making the traditional AA 12 step call. That has always been the face of AA as we've known it, the magnificent power of the 12 step call. Two men sitting beside a bed making a 12 step call on another man. When I was down in Beaumont, I got up that Saturday morning to do my meditation and looked out on the pool. And below me at seven in the morning, there were two people around the pool. And the two people, there were two what I call little girls. They were 15 years old. They had beside them on the table a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and a meditation book. And they were sitting in chairs opposite each other and they would clasp hands, close their eyes, and they were obviously praying. And then they would stop reach over and turn the page and read and then go back and hold hands and pray. And what I saw beside that pool was the new face of AA. Two little 15-year-old girls. What I also saw was a dying traditional bedrock without hearts and eyes. People loving people. It is so powerful it still jars me to my toes. The principles are the same. The face is changing. Thank God the women are coming. Thank God the children are coming. Because they live in ignorance and agony about as long as we can tolerate leaving them. The face is changing. Yes, it will remain the same. I grew up in a little town in western Kentucky named Mayfield. Uh, I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol and there were no drugs. My grandfather died drinking lye water in the Mayfield City Jail. They had an interesting way of treating alcoholics in Mayfield at that time. This was about six months before alcoholics and began in 1935. <clears throat> when my grandfather would get drunk, they'd put him in jail. When he'd sober up, they'd put him in a chain gang and shackles, and he'd sweep the Mayfield City streets. And my mother used to walk by at least once a month, her daddy in a chain gang, sweeping the Mayfield City streets. It took me in recovery a while for the scales to drop from my eyes and realize the pain that my mother had to live through the shame she had to live through, the disease of alcoholism that she had to live through. And she brought that entire disease into our home. What a loving, gentle little lady, and she was as goofy as a snake because of the disease of alcoholism. You read the family afterward and, afterward, and basically it says that if you're around one of us, and for want of a better term, you just get goofy, putting up with us. And the way it came out with Mother, she was loving and she was supportive, but her love was absolutely conditional. When I was perfect, Mother talked to me. When I wasn't perfect, Mother didn't. So I saw that problem. I became perfect. And i got to tell you, when I'm talking in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, there are an awful lot of perfect kids in here. And I absolutely became perfect. You've seen my list of accolades during my high school and college years. You thought that maybe one day I'd be president of the United States, but never an alcoholic. I started medical school in 1958. Now, I don't know about y'all, but there's always been a motor running in me. The big book calls it irritable, restless, and discontented. The professionals call it stimulus augmentation, which means we blow everything out of proportion. But there's always been that motor. Oh, get the A, get the B, get the C, get the D, get the A, get the B, get the C, go back, boom, 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 all the time, run it. And the way it came out when I walked into medical school, the dean walked out and said, there are 100 of you in this class, only 75 of you will graduate. 
If in a hundred days the last twenty-five days will flunk, look at the guy next to you because he may not be here next year. I turned and looked at that sucker. He was looking right back at me, and I thought, oh my God, it's me. I looked out across that room of a hundred people, and I thought, ninety-nine of these people look like they ought to be doctors. Guess which one didn't feel like they ought to be a doctor? Me. And that motor was running, and it was running, it was running. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. It went way past panic. It went to hysteria. You know the feeling? Like when the stoplight doesn't change, somebody honks at you, you get hysterical, and you can't figure out whether to shoot him or run and hide and wet your pants. You know, it's that kind of deal. So I packed my clothes to come home. A good friend of mine walked up and gave me a little capsule called Speed Amphetamine. I took that and the motor quit. I found four things that'll stop my motor. Amphetamine, alcohol, sex, and alcoholics anonymous. AA works better. It just takes a little longer. <laughs> yeah. But they haven't put me in jail one time for going to AA meetings. <laughs> So I took that amphetamine and I knew I found the answer. I could study, I could sleep. It was just wonderful. First semester of my freshman year, I was number one. Second semester, I was number 100. Everybody else in medical school took the amphetamine. Everybody else quit. I didn't. Two weeks before graduation, I was kicked out of medical school and the amphetamine rage. I beat up one of my medicine professors. They took me to the head of the department of psychiatry and Dr. Keller said, what's wrong with you, Burns? And I said, I take too many drugs. He said, do you believe that? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, we can help you. And I said, what do you want to do? He said, we're going to put you in intensive psychiatric therapy. He said, if you can figure out why you take that drug, you can quit. You're going to think yourself into a way of acting. Makes all the sense in the world. It's called cognitive thinking. It's what keeps us alive on a daily basis. You know, we can sit on the street corner and say, dear God, here comes a bus. I'm going to pray to you. Don't let that bus run over me, God. Step out in front of the bus, run over you every damn time. You stand up and you say, God, what happened? And God will say, why don't you ask the guy standing next to you whether y'all stepped in front of the bus or not? Yeah? Cognitive cause and effect thinking. It works in almost everything except recovery from alcohol and drugs. I'm not anti-psychiatry, neither is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our whole program was begun from a message from a psychiatrist. Carl Young, to Roland, to Evie Thatcher, to Bill Wilson, to Dr. Bob, and that's why we're all here. Harry Tebow was an absolute major contributor. These people were not ignorant. I'm not anti-psychiatry, I'm anti-ignorance. That's why I've done what I've done as far as my career is concerned, because at least for this day, God has directed me to a lot of people that I've asked if it made sense to teach doctors how to treat us. It also led me to be able to say in an AA meeting there are an awful lot of people now called synonymous practicing medicine without a license. It's time to quit. I realize why some of you do it. I realize sometimes why I get so angry, because some of us have been hurt very deeply by improper prescription and still get hurt. But there are a number of doctors around almost in every community you know recovery. And for those of you who don't have a license, please check with some of us who do. Okay? We don't have opinions in this program, but we draw strong conclusions. Okay? And that was a strong conclusion. Psychiatry helped me. It taught me a feeling. It taught me how to identify a feeling. It brought me a significant amount of knowledge. It didn't keep me from taking dope. It brought me a significant amount of knowledge. It was 15 years later when I came to you people that you tacked on a spiritual solution that would enable me to stop drinking and not take dope. Took the spiritual solution and psychiatry didn't bring it to me. But one of the major things I found is psychiatry didn't tell me they would either. And you didn't tell me that you would try to do therapy on me, although you're looking at a guy that every now and then can click into a therapeutic mode and only through the grace of God and a sponsor and a whole bunch of other things that keep me from doing it. They told me how to identify a feeling. When I got ready to go back to medical school, they said to me, uh, 
how do you feel? And I said, I'm scared to death. And they said, why? And I said, they're going to be watching you. And I said, they said, well, should they be watching you? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, should you be afraid? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, now you can own the feeling. The feeling won't have to own you. So that makes sense. So they said, now going back in school, you won't have to take drugs. Started back in the medical school, and within 30 minutes, I strung out on amphetamine again. Didn't know why. My classmates enabled me. I did go, I did graduate. When I get too hot, they take me home, put me to bed. My wife would call the uh, medical school, tell them I had the flu. They knew better, but they'd given it their best shot. And like most alcoholics, I was a nice guy, and they didn't want to hurt me. Graduated in 1964, and between 1964 and 1970, I was in Our Lady of Peace, the mental hospital in over four times, strapped down, IV fluid, straight jackets, the whole deal. I might stay off amphetamine six hours, six days, six weeks, six months, but I always took it and it always put me back in the middle of the hospital. 1967, I went in the army and was taking amphetamine. Post commander came down and said, Burns, are you taking amphetamine? I said, yes, sir. He said, if you don't quit, we'll put you in Leavenworth. So I quit. Once he explained it to me, I quit. <laughs> now, the deal was is that I could still quit. I could still quit. That was going to be crucial. Came home in 1969, got back on amphetamine, had a gallbladder attack, and they took my gallbladder out attributed to the amphetamine. Two good friends of mine, a couple of members of the board of last who were also friends of mine, came down and we talked for a while. And they said, Burns, you're a nice man and a good doctor. Please quit taking the amphetamine. So I quit. My last amphetamine was 1970. Then I started drinking. Well, the first four years, I did not drink alcohol. I might get drunk. I might stay sober. It was not an obsession. It did not occupy my entire mind every day. The next three years, I drank alcoholically. If you didn't drink, we didn't run together. If restaurants didn't serve alcohol, I didn't go. I knew exactly how much I could drink and make it to a football game, how much I could drink and not make it to a football game. Each day in my office, I was constantly obsessed with when I would get out and have that first big bottle of beer and get home and get my scotch and water. My whole life revolved around alcohol. The last year of my drinking, I drank addictively. I drank a quarter whiskey a night. I told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. The delusion was complete, but the pain wasn't over. Somewhere between, De- uh, between Thanksgiving and December 1st of 1977, Casey and I were living together. My first wife and I had split up. I ran hot and heavy for about a year, and then ran into Casey and knew that this was something of real value. And I knew that if I didn't quit drinking, I'd run her off, because I'd run everybody else off, and I, I really didn't know it was because of the drinking and my attitude that went with it. My drink of choice was scotch and water, so I switched to martinis trying to quit. I drank 24 martinis one night, couldn't get drunk. The next day I drank a bottle of beer and couldn't walk for three days. That's the way I thought it was. I switched to everything I could switch to, nothing worked. And she'd gone to work that morning. I'm sitting in a chair in our apartment in the Fontenay on Shelby Road, looking out at the sunrise. And I said, I can't take amphetamine because it messes me up. I can't drink whiskey because it messes me up. I know what I'll do. I'll smoke both. And I thought, well, hell, you can't smoke dope. You don't know why, but just nothing seems to work in you like it does in other people. And I said, then I won't do anything. I thought, that won't work. You can't live out there in that world without something in you. You can't do it. And that's when I really was hopeless and helpless. I couldn't live with it, and I couldn't live without it. And I said, God, you got to help me. I don't think God led me in this direction. I really don't know this. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. All I know is that when I realized what I had to do, the relief was overwhelming. It was great peace. It was over. Went to the bedroom, loaded my shotgun, put it in my mouth, and prepared to die. I was not afraid of dying. I was scared to death of living. I didn't know how to live. I became aware of a burning desire to live, and people have asked me over the years why I didn't pull the trigger, and it took me about two years ago to figure out why I didn't pull the trigger, and I'll tell you exactly why I didn't. It was the absence of dignity. If there's one word synonymous with recovery, 
But this alcohol, it is dignity. It is dignity. And for those of you who've been around long enough, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who are seeking to achieve it, stay with us, follow the simple steps in the program, and join the fellowship, and that dignity will return. I called to the phone and called a good friend of mine who's a psychiatrist and I said, David, please help me. He said, come over to my office and it was in the NCR building next to Our Lady of Peace. He said, you've got to go in the hospital. And I looked out at Our Lady of Peace and I said, please don't send me in there. I've been in there four times and it doesn't work. But here's where it began. I said, I will do anything you tell me to do. I quit negotiating. I quit bargaining. I just said, tell me what to do. He said, you won't have to go in there. He said, I'll send you somewhere. It took him three days to figure out where I was going to go. He sent me to a psych hospital in New York sent me there because he'd say, Burns, how do you feel? And I'd say, I'm depressed. He'd say, well, maybe it's because you drink too much. No, David, you don't understand. I know I drink too much, but I'm depressed. He said, maybe it's because of your drinking. No, David, I'm depressed. He said, but Burns, if you didn't drink, you wouldn't be I don't know about that. I'm just depressed. So finally, he said he couldn't jar that thinking, so he sent me somewhere where hopefully they'd scare the hell out of me. Now, i got to tell you, 100%, 100% of the people who come into Alcoholics Anonymous are depressed. 92% of us won't need medicine. But it takes about six months to two years to clear up. But 100% of us are depressed. And he couldn't make me see that if I would stop the drinking, that almost certainly the depression would eventually leave. So he sent me up there and they scared the hell out of me. My roommate hanged himself and all kinds of chaos took place. And I finally got transferred to an alcohol treatment center in Atlanta. Was there for a month, moved into halfway house for three months. Came home to Alcoholics Anonymous when I walked into you. I said, what have I got to do to stay sober and be happy? And you said, you do anything we tell you to do. You're going to act yourself into a way of thinking. 180 degrees difference. You can think yourself into a way of acting. You're going to act yourself into a way of thinking. The profundity of Alcoholics Anonymous still fascinates me. There was an old guy in Louisville named Charlie Robinson. He's dead now. He was probably the most spiritual person I've ever known because he was truly at peace with himself and his God and his recovery. No, Charlie always talked like he had a mouth full of mush and a head full of valium, but this man was wonderful. He used to come up to me, and, and, and this program does fascinate me, and it continues to fascinate me. He'd come up to me and put his arm around me and say, Burns, does this program fascinate you? I'd say, yeah, Charlie, it really does. And he said, that's good, because the people don't think it's too fascinating seem to get drunk a lot. And he'd turn walk on. <laughs> and I'd say, who was that masked man? Right. He had these wonderful sayings. But it does fascinate me, it's profundity, because they knew intuitively and from their own experience that we will not be able to think for about six months to two years. They knew that intuitively, that we got sawdust for brain. I said, okay, what do you want me to do? It's always the same thing, at least where I'm from and what I hear is, I said, don't drink, go to meetings, and read the big book. I said, okay. See, it has to be that simple for people like me, because I can complicate a plate of spaghetti. This program will work for a person with a 55 IQ or a person with a 180 IQ or some of us pseudo-scientists and pseudo-rocket scientists. It just takes most of us longer who think we're pseudo-scientists. You know, that's just the way it is. But it's keep it simple. So don't drink. So all right, they just beat the hell out of that. Don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. I know don't drink. Why do they just keep beating the hell out of it? And I stuck a tape of Sandy Beaches in. He said every time he got drunk, it was a direct result of drinking. <laughs> I thought the man is a genius, an absolute genius. My God, he's figured it out. This is the essence of the program. I thought it was being born poor, 
not being able to belong to the country club, having the caddy there, my ex-wife didn't appreciate me, all that kind of stuff. Mama didn't like me, she didn't talk to me unless I was perfect. I had all those reasons. He said, no, no, no. If you don't get and this is where I'm from and what I hear, is don't drink, go to meetings, and read the big book. I said, okay. See, it has to be that simple for people like me. Because I can complicate a play of spaghetti. This program will work for a person with a 55 IQ or a person with a 180 IQ or some of us pseudo-scientists and pseudo-rocket scientists. It just takes most of us longer who think we're pseudo-scientists. You know, that's just the way it is. But keep it simple. Just don't drink. So, all right, they just beat the hell out of that. Don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. I know don't drink. Why do they just keep beating the hell out of that? And I stuck a tape at Sandy Beach again. He said every time he got drunk, it was a direct result of drinking. <laughs> I thought the man is a genius, an absolute genius. My God, he's figured it out. This is the essence of the program. I thought it was being born poor, not being able to belong to the country club, having the caddy there, my ex-wife didn't appreciate me, all that kind of stuff. Mama didn't like me, she didn't talk to me unless I was perfect. I had all those reasons. He said, no, no, no. If you don't want to get drunk, don't drink. Okay, I got that. Go to me. I'm going to reflect over 16 years of going to me. Let me take you back to that home in Mayfield. I came in my junior year in high school one night and I had a bottle of beer. I didn't drink. Made me sick. Daddy came in and said, Burn, and I threw up. Daddy came in and said, Burn that? You've been drinking. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Are you drunk? And I said, No, sir. Talked to him a few minutes. He said, You really not? I said, No. He said, Let me help you clean it up. Go on upstairs and go to bed. Now, to get out of the living room, we walked over this way, went up a flight of stairs. My brother and I had a bed, bedroom upstairs. Mom and Daddy's bedroom was right there by the stairs. Now, remember this little lady that I described to you? Molested physically, emotionally, and sexually in that home. Walking by our daddy in a chain gang. We were the great hope for my mother. I was the designated doctor and my brother was the designated lawyer. And that's what we were going to be and it was going to be the complete return of her self-esteem. And here was her number one son, the, the doctor designated with alcohol on his breath. And as I walked over that way and started up those stairs, Mama came flying out of that bedroom, grabbed me by the hair of the head and went, Fuck, 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 you little bastard, I'll never talk to you again. It took me Eight years of psychiatric therapy and at least four or five, fourth and fifth steps to ever be able to acknowledge what I felt. Now, I wouldn't have said it in our home because that was not the kind of language you used in our home, but what I felt was, and you bitch, I'll never trust you again. And when I walked in this program of alcoholics anonymous, I didn't trust a damn one of you either. I've been deacon in five churches, eight years of psychiatric therapy. You had to have the answer or I was dead, but I didn't trust a one of you. And what I found out after 16 years in this program is it's a perfect program composed of an awful lot of people in varying degrees of recovery and some of us you can't trust. My first fifth step should have been on the front page of the local newspaper the next day. When we came in this program, my wife, as cute as she can be, there were a bunch of people trying to take her to bed, and I understood that. There were people trying to take me to bed, and I had little bitty skinny legs, big pot belly, about halfway yellow, I had spider hands yelling, hell, I didn't want to sleep with me, and there were people trying to get me in bed. And I didn't understand that. There were people who wanted to borrow money and they did, people who didn't intend to pay it back and they didn't. And I was real confused because this was where the answer had to be and I saw all kinds of inequities. Then I began to ask the people who wanted to take me out to have coffee, why are you taking me to have coffee? And they'd always say, or the ones that had their lights on in their head would say, because we want to stay sober and we want to help you stay sober. I found the winners. And I began to go to meetings with the winners. And I began to hear the message I needed to hear, and the trust began to come back. 
I work with people who come to me and they'll say, I'm not going back that thing out there, so be so damn bad, 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 so I hate that. Animal. And I said, here, take my hand, let's go back to the meeting. You probably didn't hear what he had to say. Let's go back and see. We go to the meeting, I hear him start talking, I think, you're right, that SOB is full of shit. Come on, let's go to another meeting. If you want what is here and you were in as bad a shape as I am, just go to a meeting and go to a meeting until you find the place where you find the winners and there are a bunch of us around. And we'll take you with us. So you can give us a time, and we can give you a time. The next thing I found out about meetings is them that don't go to meetings don't hear what happens to them that don't go to meetings. <laughs> a fellow from Texas one time said he, <clears throat> one of the circuit speakers said that when he first came to the program, he used to, he had a sponsor that was trying to get him to take him to the meeting every night. He said, I'd hide, and he'd find me, I'd hide, and he'd find me, I'd hide, and he'd find me. He said, one night I hit so good he couldn't find me. The next morning he called me and said, well, Jim, you hear what you're supposed to hear last night? He said, well, what was he? So I don't know. I heard what I told you, but you'll never know what you're supposed to hear. <laughs> I've never walked out of an AA meeting that I didn't hear something I was supposed to hear. And most of the time I walk out feeling wonderful. There are some nights I walk out, not many anymore, where I am so damn mad I could just about a nail into it. As I'm walking to the car, I'll say, God, what was I supposed to hear in that meeting? And I'll feel that little voice say, what are you supposed to hear? Let's go home and open your book to the fifth chapter and the fourth chapter and work on resentment. So I said, well, you got one. And I think I heard what I was supposed to hear. When I was driven to my knees eight and a half years in this program, I became an absolute student of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, into my head, into my heart, and today I absolutely live it and breathe it, because it has been my salvation, it's kept me between the curves, it's given me a narrow path, and the horizons have broadened beyond my comprehension, because there's always a stable, consistent place to come to to resolve my feeling problems so that I don't have to get drunk over it. And that is absolutely essential for me, is that big book message and the consistency to say it. But when I was driven to that and it became a part of my life, there's a, there is a seminal statement and there is a solution which says there will come a day, in essence this is what it says, there will come a day when we will be unable to bring into our conscious memory with sufficient force the humiliation of our last drink. We literally forget. We literally forget what happened when we got drunk the last time. When I'm out there talking to those doctors and I've got that thing all up there, all these formulas and all that stuff, they'll say, God, is that alcohol in there? I'll say, why do y'all ever drink again then? I said, because we forgot what happened to it. Listen to the people who have relapses, and you talk to them, if they'll talk to you, and they'll tell you they forgot what happened. What a magnificent gift to be able to forget pain. What a gift of God that is beyond comprehension. You know what is the only greater gift? Is that he gave us a program to be able to gently remind us of where we came from. Isn't that wonderful? Because every time I walk into one of these meetings, I am gently reminded of what I am. Through the grace of God, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book and the 12 steps, you have helped me define for me who I am. But when I walk in that door, I am reminded of what I am. And if I forget what I am, you can take it to the bank, I'll lose who I am. And I've climbed over hundreds of bodies, bloodied and beaten, because they forgot what they were. I'm burned Brady, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's just like my eyes are brown, my hair is gray, my nose is here, and these are teeth, and they're my teeth, and that's a fact. And it ain't gonna change. It ain't gonna change. Other reason I go to meetings is just home. It's where my friends are. I wouldn't choose to be anywhere else. In this particular meeting, there are not my friends. And for that I'm grateful. I guess probably the final reason I go to a lot of meetings is because I don't want to miss the miracle. I just simply don't want to miss the miracle. When I was drunk, I would lay on the floor and pray to God, God, please show me a burning bush I can give Moses. I'm very serious. 
Please show me a burning bush like they did Moses. I know you're there. Please show me a burning bush. And he did. It's called a meeting of alcoholics and And when I'm in a room of recovering alcoholics and recovering spouses and significant others in Alamon, I am living in the middle of a whole room of burning bushes. It's just that I had to change enough to be able to see it. And thank God I have. And thank God you're here. Don't drink and go to meetings. And read the big book. I thought, don't drink and go to meetings. I can do that. Now I've got to read the big book. And I'd get down and I'd take that big book and I'd open it. I'd say, God, that's beautiful. I'd read it because I couldn't remember it. I'd open my meditation book and read it because I couldn't remember it. I'd come in the AME. I'd say, I can't remember anything. He'd say, hell, don't worry about it. None of us can. Well, how long did I have? How about six months? Could you get there? Oh, yeah, I'd always get there. And I'd come in next and say, I can't remember anything because I forgot what you told me the night before, you know. I lost my car drinking all the time. I lost my car sober for the first year. I'd drive my car to work and park it and go in, practice medicine, come out and get my car, go home, drive the park and go in, practice medicine, come out and go home. One day I drove Casey's car, parked it, went in, came out, looked around, started crying. I cried a lot the first year of recovery. Looked around, I thought, somebody stole my car. And I went and I told my partner, I said, stay, somebody stole my car. And he came out and looked around and said, Burns, you drove Casey's car. I said, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> so they assigned me a parking space. <laughs> and they said, when Burns leaves work, he's going to that parking space. And if he get whatever he started, he's going to drive it home. <laughs> When I came home, I went to a psychiatrist, went to church, and went to AA. The psychiatrist didn't understand what we call today the prolonged recovery syndrome. Wilson described it in his story. He said for the first year and a half, he couldn't even get a job. Nobody trusted him. He was racked with waves of self-pity and resentment. Medical science calls this the prolonged recovery syndrome, and they say very succinctly, they studied this in 1975, and they say the alcoholic will lose the power of attentive memory for recent events for six months to two years. Simple problem solving and stress management will be distorted for six months to two years. Sleep patterns will be distorted. I'd come into a meeting, I'd say, I can't sleep. And say, nobody ever died from lack of sleep. I'd go, oh God, they don't understand. They just don't understand. Well, the psychiatrist I went to in the late 70s didn't know about that syndrome. So I'd go in on to therapy on Tuesdays, and he'd put me in deep cognitive therapy, and he'd see if I lusted after my mother, and he'd see if I hated my brother, and he'd see if I hated my little red tricycle, and we'd just work our butts off, and I'd leave on Tuesdays, come back on Thursdays, and I'd say, Homer, what are we going to do today? He'd say, let's pick up where we were on Tuesday. And I'd say, well, I don't remember where we were on Tuesday. He'd say, you're blocking your therapy. And I'd go, oh, God, I'm blocking my therapy. I'm a worm. And I'd go to an AA meeting, and I'd say, guys, I'm blocking my therapy. What do you think's wrong with me? And they'd say, what do you mean you're blocking your therapy? And I'd say, well, Homer had me on Tuesday, and I went back on Thursday, and he said, I, called, I couldn't remember where I was on Tuesday, and I'm blocking my therapy. And I'd say, well, you remember where his office was? And I'd say, yeah. And I'd say, hell, you're ahead of the game already. And you went back to the <laughs> The message here is keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it. I'm not anti-therapy. If anybody leaves this room thinking I'm anti-therapy, then you don't know Burns Brady. But I got to tell you, the times I've been in therapy, I've been in therapy with people who have an absolute 12-step program with their own recovery, who recognize the disease of alcoholism and all the physical qualities and quantities of that disease, and recognize them and respect them. Because don't even think for a minute that we've got anything short of a sawdust for brains for six months to two years. When Kathy and I and Casey were down in Gore Hills, Arkansas, when I hit this point of the guy sitting about where you are in the tent, it looked like a bad survival tent. I grew up in him and I feel real comfortable in him. And he was sitting over his head, hat pulled down over his eyes, and he's all slumped down in his chair. I said, just stick with us, it'll clear up, you haven't ruined your brain. He came out of that chair, just like he did a goose, he looked at Hallelujah, thank God, I thought I've lost my mind. And I thought, well, I know why that God sent me to this guy, and why he He followed me around that whole time saying, Dr. Brady, Belch. Dr. Brady broke when he thought I had the truth. That's all there was to it. But stick around. 
I thought, well, if I go to meetings and I can, and I can not drink, but if I can't read the big book, it won't work. It just won't work for me. Just God in heaven, how does it work? How does it work? And I remember we read how it works. See, I was getting better. So I opened the book to how it works, and that was honesty, 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 three times in the first paragraph of the fifth chapter. So those of us who may have grave emotional and mental disorders, but we can recover, we have the capacity to be honest. Those who don't recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Wilson was talking about a small, select group of people called sociopaths that truly are not able to tell right from wrong. And I've worked with a lot of people who come up to me and say, Bernie, I think I'm constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself. I say, no, no, you don't understand. Wilson was talking about a small group of people who can't be honest. And there aren't many sociopaths in this program. I've known three. But I said, there are an awful lot of liars, and I think you fit in the last category. My whole credo at that time came to be, don't drink, go to meetings, and don't tell lies. When I went into treatment, I was drinking a quarter whiskey a night, asked to go into treatment, stood in front of the guy running the treatment program, he looked at me and he said, how much do you drink? I said, I drink a six pack of beer every night. He said, you're lying. I said, I know it, I do it all the time. I do that. I'd play golf that summer before I went in the street and hit my ball on the green. I'd go up there and put a dime in front of the ball, and I'd come back later and put my ball in front of that dime. I just saved myself a fourth of an inch on a 40-foot putt, and I just hated my gut, and I'd do it over and over. That summer when I came back from treatment, I'd hit that ball on the green, and I'd put that dime behind that ball, and I'd put that ball back down in front of that dime, and I'd walk off that green feeling good about it. I couldn't find my car, but I could tell the damn truth. And I began to feel good about me. I began to feel some self-esteem. There's not a one of us comes in this program that has any self-esteem left. And I began to feel good about the fact that I could tell the truth. People say, you ask Burns Brady anything, he'll tell you the truth. I mean, I have a thing to do with what you're talking about, but he'll tell you the truth. <laughs> Today I sit in meetings, somebody says, well, that sounds like cash register honesty to me. And I say, you bet your ass it's cash register honesty. And it's as important to me today as it was the day I walked in these doors. The fifth chapter, or the sixth chapter and the fifth chapter says, we've got to be honest with somebody. What I was taught in treatment is you're only as sick as your secret. And when I've got a secret, it's when I've told you half the truth or half truth, and it tears my guts out. And I live with it until I rectify it. And i got to tell you, the people that I've seen that relapse, and the closest I've ever come to relapse is when I absolutely knew I wasn't telling the truth, and it just ate my guts out. Cash register honesty for me is as critical today as it was the day I walked in the program. And I hear it minimized a lot, and my, if my experience means anything, never minimize it. Someone says, well, you've got to be honest with yourself. Well, I agree with that, but there's a hooker in that for me, for me especially. I don't know if it's true of y'all, but for me it's absolutely true. It's in the sense that the alcohol is subtle. I understand coming back in the cycle, but I relate to subtle. The peculiar mental switch. Clancy says it best. 20,000 feet, 20 years of sobriety, riding, riding along with God, looking down at AA, he said, God, how's AA doing? And God says, Clancy, they're doing fine. He said, well, how am I doing? He said, you're doing fine, Clancy. I bet you can have a life here. The way it came out, two years in the program for me, just subtlety, just subtlety. Two years in the program, a young lady came up to me with one year in the program. She said, Burn, I'm getting ready to have my token birthday. I want you to be the speaker. I said, where are you going to have it? She said, I'm going to have it over the same time. I said, that's my home group and that's a discussion meeting. She said, it's my birthday and I want it to be a speaker meeting. I said, I need to go home and pray about it. She said, I wish you wouldn't let me know. And I got home and I got on my knees and I said, God, did you see Patty's token birthday and do you think we should have it in St. Thomas? And should that be a speaker meeting and should I be the speaker? And I felt his voice, I felt his voice as much as I've ever felt it say, it's a speaker meeting and you be the speaker. <laughs> and 
I got up and I went to the phone and I called the guru of that meeting. You know, every meeting has a guru. They sit by the door and take everybody's inventory when they come in. Now, those good healthy meetings, we rotate gurus because they burn out a lot. So we have to rotate the gurus. So I called him and I said, Jim, I think we're going to have a speaker meeting over at St. Thomas on Tuesday. He said, Brian, what? How, how'd you figure that out? I said, well, I prayed to God and had his birthday there. And God said it's okay to have a speaker meeting. He said, let me get back to you. This is strange. So he called me back in about 10 minutes. He said, I don't understand this. I just got a report to you. And I said, what's that? Yeah. And he said, well, there are five of us up here. We named them. They're all good friends. And I said, we went to the back room in the token club, closed the door, got on our knees, and asked God about that. And he said, I don't understand this. But right now, it looks like it's five to one. The God of our understanding over the God of your understanding. <laughs> I have known the absolute inspiration of prayer, and I have known the complete delusion of prayer. And the big book describes this beautifully. What I've come to know that works for this drunk is prayer and share. Prayer and share. Prayer and share. Share the prayer. Share the prayer. No mistake that there's a fellowship, there's sponsors, there's home groups, there's a big book, there's red set. He takes it off and he deals with the subtlety of alcoholism. I want to make one statement before I go on, and that is, I do not want anybody to walk out of this room, and some people have, and talked that I've given in the past, and said, well, I'm not going to read the big book for at least two years, because Bird and Freddy says you can't remember it. You probably won't. But read it. I work with somebody if it means anything. I asked God nine years in the program after that eight and a half years since I said, God, I'm not questioning you. I love you and it's unconditional. But if you get a chance, if it ever just if it ever occurs to you, you got a second on your hand, would you tell me why you left my ass out there for eight and a half years burning and swinging it down that rope? And I swear I felt that voice say, Burn, you have learned everything there is to know about alcoholism. You are leaving. By your knowledge that you were healed by your experience. Now experience is if you want it all, start over. What you what you don't remember, you pick up later. Have to leave you that message so you are real quick about what I'm sharing from my experience, okay? First year of my recovery was absolutely chaotic. I didn't know where I was half the time. I got my coat and cried the whole night. They gave me a party and I just went to bed. After about a year and a half in the program, Paul started left, and after two years in the program, I became little Mr. A. Get up on time, eat your breakfast, say your medication, get to the office, see your patient, call your sponsor, call your wife, eat your lunch, call your sponsor, call your wife, get home in the evening, get to the meeting, 30 minutes early, set up the coffee, set up the ashes, set up the street, the newcomer, say 30 minutes late, talk to the newcomer, make sure he's up, you never get home in the evening, hug your wife, call your sponsor, say your prayers, go to sleep, be grateful to God that you go, bum, 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 little Mr. Perfect Day, right? At the end of the eleventh, at the end of the sixth chapter and the eleventh step, it says, Alcoholics we are undisciplined. We allow God to discipline us this way. And I was being disciplined in the process of alcoholic phenomenon. Five years in the program, I was absolutely rigid with the perfection of AA. With my perfection in trying to do AA, I mean, I was absolutely rigid. The old timers would come around and say, Burns, how do you feel? I'd say, I'm fine. This is a snarl. They knew I was absolutely flying apart. I was down in South Georgia visiting a good friend of mine who was my first spiritual director. We don't talk about him much anymore, but we did when I came in. And Episcopal priest, next door neighbor, his wife, a good friend of my wife. He was absolutely dear to me. 
And we were visiting him in South Georgia where he moved from Louisville. And I was just absolutely flying apart. And I went back to the motel and got on my knees. And I said, God, please take away the pain. Casey put her hands on my shoulder and she called your sponsor. My first sponsor had a two-step program, number one and number 12. That's not a judgment. That's a report. Because I want you to hear what he said. And you decided it was going to me. I called Jim. I said, Jim, I'm flying apart. He said, Bird, you're the most compliant person I've ever known. I said, Jim, I just don't know if I'll get it. I don't want to drink, but I just don't know any peace. He said, when you get home, we'll talk about it. And I started to hang up the phone. He said, talk to me then. Yeah, he said, you believe you work these steps perfectly it'll make you good? Yeah, he said, you're wrong. He said, you believe you get drunk tonight it'll make you bad? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, you're wrong. I said, I don't understand. He said, Bird, you've been trying to buy something that isn't for sale. It's given for fun and for free. God bless you, that's the way you are. You can't earn it. You can't take it away. You're free to God's child. When I came in the program back on the phenomenon, intellectually I knew better. But what I thought I'd found was a program that would make me perfect. What I know today is the program that God gave me to help me deal with the fact that I'm not perfect. Spiritual progress and spiritual perfection became a way of life for me. I really understood the story of the prodigal son. It's not the drunk who comes home or the brother who has resentment. It's the story of the father who works. The next three years, God was preparing me for unconditional love. I didn't know it, but that's the journey everybody takes. All alcoholics take hostages. Every alcoholic takes hostages. My second greatest hostage was my sponsor. I picked a sponsor who would make every one of my decisions. I lived eight years in this program under a sponsor that I took every problem to me, but under the guise of humility, I really believed it, and he told me what to do, but he loved to tell people what to do, and I picked him on purpose. And he told me what to do, and if you were a busy man, I came and told you what to do, because that's what he told me to tell you what to do. And you did what he told you to do, I did what he told me to do, and I never had any responsibility. It didn't work for his fault. It didn't work for his credit. He got goofy in a snake, and I was even goofy. People came to me and said, you got to get a new sponsor, and I said, this man gave me so much, and he did. He's one of God's greatest gifts to me, and I won't go into detail of that, but he was one of God's greatest gifts to me. It reached the point in time where I had to go, and the fact was I couldn't go. I didn't know how to leave. I couldn't live without him. I did get a new sponsor and had to change all of my needs, and I mean I was absolutely dangling in the wind. Casey, who was my greatest hostage, came up to me about that time. She was in AA for, in Alabama for six years and then switched to AA. She came to me and said, Bird, oh, I had Casey on my hip. Everywhere I went, Casey went. We prayed together. We made love together. I'd call her three and uh, ten in the morning. I'd say, Casey, I love you. And she'd say, I love you. I'd call her three and a half. And I'd say, Casey, I love you. And she'd say, I love you. I'd call her ten the next morning. I'd say, Casey, she wouldn't be there. And that evening at three, I'd call her. I'd say, Casey, I love you. Where in the hell were you at ten this morning? I put a phone in her car. Put a phone in her car so that she'd have it in case she had a wreck. Unfortunately, you know, the interesting thing about that is I made about seven or eight phone calls a day to her to tell her I love her just so I'd know where she was. I didn't know that. She came up to me at eight and a half years ago. She said, I love you. I've never loved you more, but I want to go to my own meeting. I want to go back to school. And I want to go into therapy. And I remember saying, that's fine, Casey. And what I felt was, and I'm not trusting you, but I went to my new sponsor. I thought, I'm going to get me another woman. He said, you get you another woman, but if you don't change your attitude, you'll run her off just like you run in this one off. And I didn't know what he meant. And I just tried. When she was ready, the teacher will arrive, and little cookie man came up with eight tapes and said, Would you listen to these tapes if these are any good? They were Joey's all these tapes, the big book of alcoholics now. As I listened to those tapes, I knew the program I didn't have. I had 12 copies of those made in the bunch of us started a big book study, and we stayed together throughout the years. The 
first member of that original twelve is now being made to die. Now this guy's lung cancer to the bone. We had a supper for him not too long ago and he said, John, what would you like to do? Five years ago, John began playing golf with some of us. He quit, finally was able to tell us, I hate golf, I just want to be around golf. As we said that night, when we knew he was dying, he said, John, what would you like to do? He said, would y'all play golf with me? And then somebody explained golf to John that not two or three times a week to die. What I learned in studying those tapes is the real reason I'm on the face of this earth be a maximum service to you the God. In the business view it says we can't give away what we don't have. By the time I got to there I had a ton to give away. The individual who's been sober just for today had a ton to give away too. How did you not take a drink today? Don't tell me you can't make a twist up all the CC and share the message that you've got. Not try to carry mine. And for me not to try to carry jack or milk or taxi. I'll get it. What about unacceptable behavior? We're going to do this, is that, how do we put up an unacceptable behavior? There's a promise right before the promise of reading. Two lines that are sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't fall before anybody. What a magnificent statement of surrender. Not aggression, but humble. Three stories in our church. Seventeen years ago, my daughter said, Straddle my chest. I would pass out, she was strung out on amphetamine, Darbon, Valium, and alcohol. She tried to kill me. Only she didn't because she couldn't load the automatic shotgun. These are stories of hope. I don't know if these specific stories will have to be something there. Twelve years ago, my daughter came in the program about heart tonight. Five years ago, she got married and she asked to give her away. Dad. Two years ago, on June 22nd, Stacy and I were at a conference and we came home. And we came home on Father's Day and my birthday. There were balloons hanging above the mailbox. Hanging above the garage and on the front door. And I turned the leader and said, Happy Father's Day and happy birthday to the world's greatest dad. Love, sister. My son came in the program, been in the program eight years, he came in when he uh, now 25. He lived with his mother, went back to live with her when he was 14 because he started drinking and he knew I'd catch him. He's allowed me to tell the story. He sold all of his mother's silverware and most of her uh, jewelry. He did it one piece at a time so she didn't catch it, but she couldn't avoid it when she when he sold her car. She hadn't put him in jail, he got out of jail and came, she took him out and came back to live with me and for a year I've been preparing myself spiritually to make the right answer that was in his best interest. And I'd gone through all the spiritual preparation with all the tools we've done. And he came in and he said, Daddy, I want to live with you and I said, you can't. And they said, go into treatment. He said, treatment for what? I said, treatment for the alcohol. And he said, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, that's your call if you want to live on the street. It's my call if you live here. He said, screw you. He turned around and walked out and I dropped on my knees and cried and said, God, please keep me strong for that boy. I knew where he was for almost four months he lived on the street. I knew God would tell me to do what I had to do. Finally came to Daddy, please send me treatment. When treatment came home a year after he got home, the treatment was in a meeting. The woman said, my son went to camp with two boys and thought he was smoking dope. And I know a boy been smoking dope, but I don't know what to do to help him. I said, the finally a boy raised his hand and said, I don't know what to do to help him, but I feel what turned my life around. And my sister was somebody that I liked and loved, and she became a drug addict and an alcoholic. I still loved her, but I didn't like her. She got an alcoholic and I became a lady again. And I loved her, but that wasn't what turned my life around. She was dead. When he was drinking, he'd come home and sit mother. He would come up and beat us if we wanted him dead. He'd lie to us about when he'd say he'd come pick us up. But he got an alcoholic and I'm 
Oh, you ever talk? I've ever given the same way. I couldn't walk off and she's on my business father Martin's face and he had a face of red stuff that he closed in a way that says, it's better than I can. And people in my thoughts frequently, you'll be in my heart and you'll be in my prayers always. I love you from the bottom of my heart. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for allowing me to talk. Most of all, I thank Sister Ann and many of you for the little new message that gave me a man I like. For those of you I've seen again, good to see you. For those of you that are me for the first time, welcome into my life. For those of you I won't get to know, I promise you we will know each other. We trust each other after this. Thanks for the privilege of being here tonight. the day you